With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Our latest episode of Soundtracking sees a return for the supremely entertaining writer, director and producer, Sasha Gervaisi, who joined me a couple of months ago to discuss his career to date. Now, we held some of that interview back to coincide with the release of his latest movie, My Dinner with Hervé. Starring Peter Dinklage and Jamie Dornan, My Dinner with Hervé recounts the latter days of actor Hervé Villachez, best known for his role in smash TV show Fantasy Island and The Man with the Golden Gun, in which he played Nick Knack. As you'll hear, it's a deeply personal endeavour for Sasha, who almost by chance got to know Hervé very well shortly before he committed suicide. Before we get into that, we just wanted to say a massive thank you to the Radio Academy here in the UK for awarding us not only a bronze award, but gold in the category of Best Specialist Music Show at this year's ARIA Awards. We are extremely chuffed and are incredibly grateful to them, just as we are to you guys for listening. Speaking of award-winning podcasts, No Such Thing as a Fish is a must. Brought to us by the researchers behind the BBC TV show QI, it's a wonderful forum for barely believable yet hilarious facts in which the team present their favourite curios from the week's news with unerring charm and wit. And now they've written a book. It's called The Book of the Year 2018. And as a big fan of both No Such Thing as a Fish and QI, I'm loving it. Among the bizarre gems they've unearthed are the fact Mark Zuckerberg's private data was compromised while he was talking to Congress about compromised data. While a Belgian footballer inadvertently caused a revolution in Haiti. My personal favourite, though, is that Kim Jong-un brought his own toilet to the Singapore summit with Donald Trump so that spies couldn't use anything he left behind to analyse his health. Love it. The book of the year 2018 by No Such Thing as a Fish is your definitive guide to the world's weirdest news. It is out now in hardback, ebook, and audiobook in all good bookshops and online. Back to this week's episode. Now, given My Dinner with Hervé was 25 years in the making, Sasha talks at length about his own relationship with Hervé and why he felt he owed it to him to get the project off the ground, which we think is a tale worth telling. So before we get to the music, we're going to share this incredible backstory with you, interspersed with extracts from composer David Norland's score. And a fine score it is too, as demonstrated by this cue, Sprinklers.
Saji, welcome back to Soundtracking. This time we can talk about Harvey, which is great. So, <laughs> My uh, dinner with Harvey. Yeah, which <laughs> is something that's been part of your life. This, for a long time. This yeah. man has been part of your life for a long time. Yeah. Well, it, you know, I was just thinking, you know, when we were going to talk about it, it's actually 25 years ago that I was sent to L.A. by a newspaper to, to do a whole slew of interviews, the least important of which was a brief interview with Hervé Villachez. So I was sent to, to do uh, a whole bunch of stuff, and, and, you know, at the end they threw in, hey, go and do, you know, the funny guy from the, the Roman Golden Gun yeah. and the Fancy Island. And so I went, you know, with the intention of, I, my editor said, you know, 500 words, a few jokes, get out of there, go on to your big interview, you know. So I went to meet him, and first of all, he was one of the most compelling, charming, bizarre, sort of astonishing characters. I mean, when Hervé walked into the room, I mean, I was sitting in the chair, I was looking down at him, and he was standing right next to me. I mean, he was three foot ten and had this incredible voice. And, you know, he was clearly something that was going on with him. He was kind of lit up, and I couldn't tell whether he was drunk or medicated or both. And he was so charming and sweet. And so, you know, we had the interview. And then um, we went through the stories about Fantasy Island because, you know, only 10, 12 years before, he'd been on the number one TV show in the world, Fantasy Island, Aaron Spelling. Uh, and before that, he'd done The Man with the Golden Gun, and everyone knew Knickknack. And, you know, so he'd done these iconic roles, yeah. but you didn't really know much about him. And he was kind of a bit of a punchline in one sense. He yeah. was like, how this isn't a real person. You know, so I was, as I was packing my stuff away, you know, we were at this place on Melrose in, in California, called, uh, in L.A., called Cafe Moustache. And it was in the afternoon, and we were the only people there. And I had this get in and get out to my next interview. And I was packing my stuff away, and, and I turned back, and he'd come around the table. He was sitting opposite me. And he had been eating this duck a l'orange with this lock knife. And he was standing there with this knife, like, near my throat. And I was like... I'm about to be shivved by the midget from Fancy Island. I was like, what? It was just so weird. Yeah. It wasn't threatening. What it was was he wanted to get my attention, and he said, I haven't finished yet. You know, that whole, all those stories, yeah. you've written this story. You're doing the same story that everyone does. Funny yeah. little Hervé, ha, ha, ha. You'd if you want to know the you. real story, I'll tell you the real story. And there was something in his eyes. There was something so intense and desperate and emotional that I, it, it just pierced my kind of cynical, journalistic, you know, I've got the kind of story thing. Yeah. And I just started to think, well, okay. I, he, he called me out on it. I completely prejudged it. I completely had written the story before I got there. I was not allowing any kind of sense of, you know, what is this person like as a human being? So anyway, cut a long story short, I ended up rescheduling my interviews and I spent three days with him. And it was the most compelling and unexpected story. And I found myself, which is quite rare, really connecting with him. You know, I was at a certain point in my life, I kind of, in a strange way, I felt how he looked. You know, I was not having a particularly good time and he just was incredibly kind and sweet with me mm -hmm. and so honest. And so he told me, so many things about his upbringing, a lot of this stuff in this film, you know, about the family dynamics and three normal-sized brothers and he would get attacked on the street and, mm. 
you know, really the emotional reality of what it's like to have grown up as a little person, you know, in, in Paris in the early 1950s, which was, you know, he would literally walk down the street and get kicked in the head. And so his father kind of gave him some money and said, go to New York, that's where all the, you know, they'll accept you and all the freaks yeah. go. And he did, and he had this incredible evolution and, you know, fell into kind of theater and then that led to the Bond movie, etc. But But he was also an extraordinarily talented artist and painter. And I think he was still, to this day, the youngest painter to have a picture of in the Museum of Paris, I think at age 18. So he was talented and the painting was a way for him to sort of exercise these demons of, of feeling other, of feeling less than, of feeling apart from, which he always was. So he told me this story and I was completely compelled and I remember I had these little micro cassette tapes that we had back in 1992. Do you still have the tapes? I still have the tapes. Well, my mum's got them somewhere in her storage, but yeah, I do actually. So basically I had like 15 hours of tape for 500 words. So I remember I, I flew home. I, so I saw him and we had the last time we saw each other, it was, you know, it was very emotional. Yeah. The last thing he said to me is actually in the film. He said, he looked at me, and we were in the Universal Sheraton where I'd gone to visit him, and he looked at me and he said, tell them I regret nothing. And it was just this incredible, oh my God. I didn't know what was going on, but you, you know, you just have this sense that what is going on here? Yeah. And I flew home to London, and I think it was six days later or five days later, I got a call from Kathy, who was his girlfriend who I'd met at that time. Yeah. Who was actually played by Mireille Enos, very beautifully in the film. Yeah, really lovely. And she is an extraordinary actress, but, but Kathy is extraordinary. And she called to say that that morning, which was Sunday the 4th of September 1993, this was, sorry, not 1992, Hervé had committed suicide. And I just suddenly got very emotional. And I realised, like, just by some weird twist of fate, you know, some English journalist had decided to contact him as a joke. And as I listened back to the tapes, I realized that this was his will. He was telling some random stranger his story. And so my whole mentality went from doing a joke interview to writing something that I felt was really true to his life. And so I sat down and I wrote what I thought was a really strong piece of journalism from the perspective of, I walked in with filled with judgment and blind yeah. and I came out having a human connection with someone extraordinary who I never would have imagined would have been yeah. this type of person and I took it into the editors and they said this is wonderful unfortunately and this was for you magazine at the time right they said you know we're six million people are going to choke on their chocolate croissants you know we can't have a suicidal dwarf and you know all the stuff and so I said well great I'll take it somewhere else because I'd already lined it up to, to go somewhere else because I sort of knew that they weren't yeah. really going to get it because that's not what they did, you know? And they said, no, we want the story. And I said, well, you can't have the story. I, I, they said, we flew you out there 
we sent you to the interview, we own the story. Now, if you don't rewrite it, someone else will. So in the end, someone else rewrote the story. Because I wanted it to be a cover story. It was a world exclusive. You yeah. know, you're still very famous at that time. In the end, it was rewritten and cut down significantly. I sort of did a little bit. But ultimately, you know, we got a few pages in the middle. And it was just kind of, you know... Fluffy. Vanillified. Yeah. You know, there was some stuff in there, but it never really got all the stuff that had happened between us. Yeah. said one day I'm gonna tell his fucking story so a couple of years later I sat down and I wrote my first ever screenplay I had no idea what I was doing it was a short script about a short man <laughs> called my dinner with Hervé it was 34 pages and it was just my attempt to tell this story and I thought wow. I'm gonna tell it like a sort of epic and that script was the thing that got me into UCLA film school that ultimately Steven Spielberg read and started my career ironically but you know, so I'd always intended to do it as a film, and several years ago, I was, I was actually going to do it after Anvil. And the truth is, we just couldn't get it made. Because mm -hmm. Peter Dinklage and I had been talking since just around the station agent. Oh, wow. You know, so, Peter, so, so 15, 16 years ago, the station agent was this huge hit, and Peter, yeah. suddenly Peter Dinklage has arrived, yeah. and it becomes this indie film darling. I approached him. He said he'd been inspired by Hervé, and as a successful other you know, like yeah. different type of actor, but also just as a human being from his interesting, you know, his wonderful tapestry of adventures in life and what he'd accomplished. Peter had obviously been very aware of him yeah. and felt a natural kinship because, you know, in the film you see Hervé having experimental medical treatments. You know, Peter had had a version of that later in life. So he related directly to that experience and he really wanted to play the part. I'd done Anvil and I really wanted to make Hervé. No one wanted to make it. Peter Dinklage, you know, yeah. who's Peter Dinklage? You know, great, he's big at Sundance, no one cares. So it was very sort of frustrating because that's really what I wanted to do, yeah. you know, almost 10 years ago now. So it kind of, I had written it as a feature and it kind of languished. And then a few years ago, I came back to it and I thought, you know, this is, it was still going to be, the original script was really all about Hervé's life. Mm -hmm. And it was all about, you know, his art career, the extraordinary stuff he'd done, helping kids and charities. He's, you know, he did, he has an amazing life. But, you know, it suddenly dawned on me no one really wanted to make that film. And someone said to me, look, you know, why have you kept going, you know, literally at that point for sort of 20 years on this story? What is it? And I said, well, because I kind of made a promise to this guy that I was going to tell the story and I feel like I ought to do it. And they said, well, he told you. Maybe he told you for a reason. And I started to think, well, that's interesting because most people would have just given up like mm -hmm. rationally Anvil should have just given up but they kept going you know why have I kept going with this story because I related to it
then sort of the idea formed of making it really a relationship film so that I could then also have another big part. It was about two people as much as it was about Hervé. And in the end, that's how I wrote the script. And that was the movie that got made. That was the one that people wanted to make. Yeah. So it, it evolved over the past 20 years into that. And it's amazing what's happened, you know, as I, because I, I obviously got to know a lot about him. Knowing him in, in the short period I did, you know, he was so incredibly defiantly proud. I mean, the first thing he said is, don't call me little person, call me dwarf. And I'm a French dwarf, you know, and he was like, he was very like, this is who I am, fuck you. You know, yeah, he yeah, didn't yeah. give a fuck, right? And there was something beautiful about that. And, you know, his legendary kind of stuff with women, because there had been a rumor going around that he, 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 he was so well endowed that, you know, his nickname was Tripod, you know, that was so, I actually, I actually had the good fortune to speak with Roger Moore several years ago about Hervé, I, 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 you know, met him and we chatted about Hervé and he, he was very sweet about him because I'd heard all these stories about, you know, his outrageous behaviour during The Man with the Golden Gun, he said he was, he was a very, very naughty little man, he said stuff like that because he, then he told crazy stories but, you know, he said, no, the Tripod was not his nickname, he was it, so there were all these myths and legends yeah. that had built up around Hervé over the years, so many things. That... And he's Filipino descent, that as well. Well, you know, it's so interesting. It's like out of nowhere, this, you know, many things, but yeah, that's one of them where, in my research for Hervé, having spoken and gotten to know his brother, Patrick, who's also in the film. Is know, he? Patrick's in the film. So there's a scene where Hervé is having his, I think it's his third or fourth birthday, and there's a butler who comes in who gives Hervé his cake. That is Hervé's real brother. Because oh, wow. Patrick, we reached out to Patrick. We really wanted to get you know, we wanted the family to feel good and I wanted, to, you know, Patrick to meet Peter and they have a, um, an amazing friendship because you can imagine how odd it is for Patrick that his, his brothers died 25 years ago and suddenly here, here come these random people and Peter yeah. Dinklage to make a film about him. I think he was very touched that he would be remembered and, and remembered with love in the way that I think we've done. And yeah, the Filipino thing, for example, came up with him and he's like, what are you talking about? And Kathy, who was his girlfriend, similarly, you know, there are many myths that have come up and that's one of them that's just not factually true. But you know how stuff gets on the internet and yeah. people tend to believe it. But it's, um, you know, knowing Hervé as he was, me and Patrick were talking about it, you know, Hervé was so defiantly proud. If he actually had been Filipino, he would have been said, I'm Filipino, you know. Yeah. So, but it's funny how these things happen. You know, people make a judgment. And they, oh, he must look Filipino. He looks Filipino. Let's put that on the thing. But yeah, there's there's many myths about Hervé. Tripod, Filipino, you know, that he did, uh, that he was selfish and venal and a drug addict. Completely untrue. You know, because I'd heard that, for example, he did tons of cocaine and drugs, you know, and both his brother and his girlfriend said, completely untrue. So it was important for us that we get, yeah. you know, the real stuff in there. Yeah recognizing also this is a film and we're trying to tell a life and, and a relationship in an hour and a half.
is this amazing picture that you know they take a Polaroid in the film and mm -hmm. then we see the real Polaroid at the end. It's yeah. such an emotional moment watching the film. Just his eyes, his kind of bloodshot eyes in that Polaroid yeah. sort of thing. And that was literally, I think, six days before he committed suicide. So I knew something was going on. I think, you know, if, if I'm being honest, when I make a film, sometimes you do it because you, you know, want to work. And other times you do it because there's a sort of a personal, maybe almost sacred reason. Yeah. I think that's true with Hervé. I think that's true with Anvil. Both of those films end with a photo of me and the subject. I mean, I'm uh, at the risk of sounding ridiculously uh, egotistical. I think I'm trying to make sense of my own life. Like, why did this shit happen? Because I don't know. Yeah. I have absolutely no idea why this stuff happened. But I'm trying to kind of understand, you know, there was a reason why Herve told me his story. There was a reason why 25 years to the month that we met, this film is now about to come out. You know, so I'm still trying to make sense of it. But to me, it's the ones I have a real personal connection with that really are the sort of, the, for me, the per more personal, poetic films. Um, and I'm just going to try and keep doing that because that's what we're here for, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Telling to, stories. To, to, to tell the story that matters to you that hopefully other people connect with. And I was really fortunate with Anvil that other people really connected with it. And I think that, you know, hopefully, you, you know, this becomes a universal story too because it's a, we've all felt like Hervé. We've all felt less than and the freak in the corner and the other and whether at school or, at, or in jobs, we've all felt rejected by parents or or lovers or and we've all felt the emptiness of success if we've had some mm. you know and I think we're in a culture right now where you know it's it's worrying kids are growing up you know watching Instagram which yeah. to me is just a real just it's all it is 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 a people boasting or people kind of fronting yeah. about how happy and how wonderful isn't yeah. this great and I'm on this big yacht and it's just kids are growing up comparing their insides to other people's outsides and there's a spate of yeah. suicides and depressions and yeah. increased drug use and you know because we're making ourselves miserable and I think one of the points of this film is to point out you can have it all but let me tell you man it's fucking empty <laughs> like look at what Hervé he was making in 1979 Hervé was making $35,000 per week which is about equivalent of 10 times that now had all the money in the world he was famous he was on the front cover of Time whatever Time magazine you know he was yeah. known all over the world did that fix it? Absolutely not. And I think you see that with celebrities today. Yeah. And it's just, I just hope that people get the message, you know, that you need to earn stuff, you know, that if you're happy, it's going to be in spite of those things, not yeah. because of them. So, you know, I, 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 it's sort of a little bit about the vapidity and emptiness of fame as well. You know, I'm not really preaching too much, but, you know, I'm, I'm in Hollywood. And so all around me, I see people who are massively successful, famous people. And, you know, most of them are miserable because <laughs> everything that they were taught or told would make them happy. Guess what? They've got it all and it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So I think the sooner people can kind of get with that truth, the better, because all of that stuff is glittering and and impressive but you know it's not real it's not real you know you can get high on it for a weekend and then it's Monday and and then what are you gonna do you know what I mean yeah. who, who gives a shit how big your boat is if you're miserable motherfucker you know? <laughs> so I just I, I, I hope that that I think Hervé learned that lesson hard no matter what he did no matter how famous or rich he got it couldn't fix something that was at his core mm. and that is I think the tragedy of modern life as well I hope you know, that speaks to that. Anyway, I hope some, someone gets something from it. I, I certainly did. Yeah, no, I, I, I did it too, totally. I really did.
with music with the film. Yeah. It's really interesting because there's in the past you've 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 used great stuff that you've managed to get whether it be Bowie, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Things like that in there as well. And we've got a My Morning Jacket track as well in um, November Criminals, yeah. which we haven't even talked about. But there's needle drops, as you know, sure. the, the, as, as source source music, source. yeah, um, that's in there. That's that's really great and really kind of some of those tracks as well are so kind of they put you instantly in a play. In moment, yeah. yeah, totally, especially in clubs and things like that as well. And then that working in unison as well with the score was that easy to achieve? Yeah, I mean, that? in terms of, obviously, I wanted an orchestral score. And, you know, there was so much emotion and sadness and this sort of very desperate and tenuous connection between these two human beings at a certain point. Yeah. And then ultimately this real identification and this bond and this friendship. And it just felt to David Norland and I, the composer, that, you know, that strings would have to play a large part in that. But also you're telling a story which is, you know, late 70s LA, you know, early 90s, Lon uh, early 90s London. Yeah. You know, so you've, you've, you've got a lot of pop and you want to bring up 1978. And for example, one of the big needle drops was there's a quite obscure number one single by Leif Garrett. I can't even remember the name of the song. I always confuse it with the Kiss song, I Was Made oh, For yeah, Loving yeah. You, which is also in the film. film. Yeah. Um, I Was Made For Dancing by Leif Garrett. And, no the, and, the re dance. and the reason why I Was Made For Dancing was in was because Leif Garrett had the same kind of fame that Hervé did. Oh, he wow. was a teen idol, 77, 78. He had a couple of number one hits. He was big for like two years in the way that Hervé was between 79 and 81. Massive, number one, idol, and then evaporated. You know, it was so, to me, you, the use of that song was sort of also telling the story. It was saying, okay, this is this kind of fame. Yeah. Which is so kind of um, fragile and, and so flavor of the month. And there's something dangerous about that. <laughs> yeah. But it really works for that era. liked our movie and wanted to be involved, we were able to get some extraordinary source cues into the film and people just giving us, you know, the music, yeah. basically, because we didn't have a lot, by the end of the film you have no money, right? <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, when you when you do a budget, the guy doing the budget always puts, like, nothing in for music, music going, yeah, they'll, yeah. they'll give you more money later, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. of course they never <laughs> do, yeah. and so you're just like, oh great, yeah, what am I going to do? <laughs> um, so it was, again, same thing with Anvil, it was like something 
quite different. Yeah. You know, in, in Andal's case, it was sort of heavy metal absurdity versus kind of Seeger Ross inspired kind of dissonant, ambient, Eno-esque sort. And in this case, it was, you know, emotional strings with, you know, quite poppy and, and sort of upbeat and, yeah. and kitschy source because, you know, Fantasy Island was kitsch. I mean, as you'll remember from the movie, Andy Garcia is Ricardo Montalban and he brings such a sort of ludicrous kitsch to it. <laughs> Suave but, kitsch, it's amazing. But what makes it work, I think, is that he's completely earnest and he took it very seriously and it works, I think, so well. Mm. So you've got kitsch but you've also got real emotion, mm. you know, but the other way around to Anvil, and I wanted to, but I think at some of the source cues, yeah, you like know, we you, were lucky. it's bookended with this wonderful version of Fly Me to the Moon. That's right, by Doris Day. And originally we were going to use Julie London, um, and she actually appears in the art school scene, we have the Julie London version of Fly Me to the Moon, but I just love this Doris Day that begins, yeah, you're right, the movie begins with it, and there's something sort of so, delicate and sweet and romantic but very sad mm -hmm. and the film is hopefully those things yeah. it's very romantic and very sad and pure and emotional you know that's what we were going for fly me to the moon and let me play among the stars let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars in other words, hold my hand. In other words, darling, kiss me. Fill my heart with song and let me sing forevermore. You are all I long for, all I worship and adore. In other words, please be true. In other words, I love I was made for loving you, which was Kiss's sellout disco song, number one from 1979, yeah. which is just utterly appalling. But right on wonderful. time through the 90s. Yes, then we have yeah. the 90s. We have Black yeah. Box right yeah. on time in that scene in the dance club. Really some quite iconic songs. Yeah, totally. And across the board. That's the whole thing, is this movie tonally is across the board. You're such a, you're such a, you're such a temptation. You just walk right in, walk, walk, walk right in. 
basically because you are kind of, you know, you're, there's different eras that you're in within the film, it's such a brilliant way of kind of going, I'm there. I'm yes. in, you know, I'm in the 90s. Yeah, it's just really clever because you instantly know where you are. Like the hooked on Beethoven, um, like, um, yeah, the hooked on Beethoven. Yeah. You know, that, that, I can't, was it Walter Murphy? I can't remember, but it's da 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 yeah, da, yeah, da, yeah. that thing. It was like, it's such a ridiculous song, but it's perfect. Yeah. You know, for that, to taking you back to that time. Mm absolutely brilliant music supervisor called Evian Clean and also Janet who works with him the two of them were phenomenal we worked very well me David and those guys yeah I think we did a really good job yeah. given that we had no no budget yeah. we just had to literally call and plead and beg <laughs> and you know make it happen yeah well I think you know you've done what you promised with you know that promise you made him of telling a story you've done it and it's done beautifully so congratulations <laughs> I think I just got silent there. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Yeah, I, I, you know, I feel like I've dispatched my karmic duty somehow with this film, yeah. It's great. What's next? I saw, on, I mean, you know, there you're talking about... Next, there is nothing next. There is nothing next. I saw How to Marry a Millionaire. Oh, God. No, which that was a, really that was a, exciting Again, me. another myth of there the internet. There we go. It's, it's, you know, yeah, I think fake it's news alert. Yeah, fake news. I mean, there's lots of fake news on the internet. I think that was something that I wrote 10 years ago. I did a draft of it, never yeah. got made, you know. There's many things out there that, again, yeah. not true. Just like the whole um, business we discussed before, you know. And, yeah. and it's, I mean, actually, Hervé is English, French, Italian, and German. That is his actual lineage. Yeah. That's the fact. And, and How to Marry a Millionaire did not get made. So I wrote a draft of it. So yeah, there's a few things I'm percolating on, but I haven't really um, figured out what I'm doing yeah. next. I, I, I think this is a sort of natural rest point in my sort of in my career life it's like chapter one mm -hmm. I've having made this film that I've wanted to for 25 years it's there's a natural wow. it is a time for reflection and thinking and you know I have a, a, a very crazy idea um, that I'm I'm sort of noodling on but I'm not rushing okay until I'm, don't take 25 years I won't no no, no. I mean I got <laughs> work man I, I, I got bills to pay <laughs> I've got um, skateboards to buy. I've got, got stuff to do. I've got, I need a new drum kit. So. <laughs> there's, a, there's a wonderful, you know, obviously the time you spent in real life with Harvey and the character that Jamie plays in the film. There's obviously part of you in that character. A little bit, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, but, it, but it's, you know, the, the movie is inspired by real events, which means that the basic situation is the same, mm. but a lot of the details. Yeah. Of, you know, which is why Jamie plays a character called Danny Tate. He's sort of half me, but half someone else. Yeah. I mean, if it was me, I would have just not, I would just use my name, but you know, it's a character. So a lot of the details are quite different. Sasha, thank you so much for your time. Come back for a third sit in maybe sometime. <laughs> Anytime. Thank you. Thanks, Edith. Tonight, I want to give it all to you. In the darkness, there's so much I want.
in my dinner with Hervé that I was made for loving you by Kiss rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Sasha Gervaisi and there was you thinking we weren't going to play it my huge thanks to Sasha for his time my dinner with Hervé is airing on Sky Atlantic in the UK having premiered on HBO seek it out on whatever platform you can now we'll put up a link to a Spotify playlist for this show at edithbowman.com which is also the place to catch up with all of our previous episodes follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, we are at Soundtracking UK and don't forget to check out the book of the year 2018 by our fellow podcasters No Such Thing As A Fish which is out now on ebook, audiobook and hardback in all good bookshops next up Someone else you'll find in all good bookshops, the one and only Irvin Welsh. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.